listening to this episode because you're a Taz fan. Well, can you believe it? Taz is leaving the house. Taz never makes personal appearances, but he's going to make one this November. It's Starcast 4, and we're coming to Baltimore, and we're bringing all the stars of AEW and the old school stars of WCW and the NWA. How about an appearance from Sting in the red, white, and blue? That's right. Just like he wore at Great American Bash 1990 when he won the world title, it's a once-in-a-lifetime photo op with that jacket, that face paint, and the actual belt he won that night. Oh, and we've got the great Muda. How about that? He's coming all the way over from Japan for a very unique photo op. And Taz left the house. Can you believe it? See the full lineup of old school stars like Arn Anderson, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Lex Luger, and some of the, well, more fun gimmicks like the Yeti. That's right. The Yeti, I think is how Tony Schiavone calls it. The Shockmaster, Robocop, the Ding Dongs. It sounds too good to be true, but it's going down November 8th and 9th, right there in Baltimore. You got to go check this out. Starcast.com. That's S T A R R C A S T.com. And don't forget, this is one of the most rare opportunities ever. You get to meet Taz in person. Check it out right now. Meet and greets are on sale as we speak at S T A R R C A S T.com. That's Starcast.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Connie, I'm tired. Well, I understand. And I can't figure out. I can't figure. I've got three mouses on my uh, desk right now because I'm moving. Everything in my fucking house is packed up except for my desk and all this shit. And I got three mouses on my desk, and I can't figure out which one's which. Is mouses the plural of mouse? It is to me. Okay. Well, it, it is tonight. Let's put it that way. All right. I'm not opposed to it. You know, I, uh, I'm tired too. I'm tired of getting tweets wanting to know if we're going to talk about hell in the cell. Well, we're not. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I knew you were going to say that, but I also knew if I didn't ask, then uh, they were going to string me up on Twitter. So, and that would take quite the rope. As you well know, and a lot of it, a lot of it, but what we're going to talk about today is, well, somebody who's probably going to want to string us both up. I can't believe this is real, but it's time. And, uh, well, when this airs, the mood is about to change because we're talking about Taz and, uh, your great friend, Pete was born October 11th, 1967 in Brooklyn, New York. Of course he wrestled in college, competed in judo. And I think that's actually where his finishing maneuver came from. Uh, the Taz mission, as you guys called it in judo, I think it's called the Kata Hajime. Uh, how would, uh, how would Pat Patterson pronounce that finisher? Do you think? What the fuck did you call it? Well, I mean, you call it the Taz mission, right? Yeah. But I think the actual name is like the Kata Hajime. Kata Hajime. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I can teach you how to say Yokohama and I can teach you the name of Taz's finisher. I'm a goddamn three-time black belt hall of famer. I don't even have my blacks up on the wall anymore, Connie. And, 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 and I know that kind of hot to What? Well, listen, I think the extent of your karate knowledge is like where to mail the check and how to do the karate kid. Crane oh, horse move. shit. I took judo too. The first, the first three years of my training included judo. Okay. It was like a buy one, get one free down at the strip mall. No, it was free at, uh, the parks and recreation department. 
Well, let's talk about, uh, how Taz got into the business. I think he knew a guy who knew Johnny Rods and, um, he starts training with Johnny and, and Johnny Rods is a name we hear a lot. And I think he's a hall of famer, uh, but he's taught dude, a ton of dudes, uh, Devon Dudley, Tommy dreamer, big Cass, bill DeMont, uh, Damien Demento. I think Vince Russo makes the cut and even, uh, big, oh, big... fuck. No, no. Johnny Rods ain't going to take that. <laughs> well, don't put that on Johnny Rods. Johnny Rods made the hall of fame. 1996. You got any good Johnny Rod stories you can share with us? Oh, you know, I, I didn't get an opportunity to work with Johnny all that much. And other than I heard stories and Johnny was a mainstay in the New York territory. Whenever they would bring a new guy in, like, for example, Gino Hernandez came in for a shot at the, in the garden is a favor to Paul Bosch by Vince's dad. And Johnny Rods is who got the got the nod to work with Gino. And as the story goes, Rods looked at Gino like a snot-nosed punk and basically beat the shit out of him. And there wasn't a whole lot that Gino was going to do about it. I also heard the story about, did you ever hear of a guy by the name of Java Rook? No, that didn't ring a bell. Okay, Java Rook was a guy that was uh, heralded in... California as being the next big thing. And they were bringing this guy in and every year in LA, they had the huge battle Royal and whoever won that battle Royal, they, they were going to be the top guy for like the next year, you know, working with the champion, they were going to be on top. They're going to run for the America's title, which was the big title in uh, California at the time. And Java Rook was the guy and Java came in, he won the battle Royal and about two weeks later, Java was gone. Java Rook was Johnny Rods. Ah, okay. There we go. We learned something new today. See that? So I, and it was, uh, and Mike Tanay is the one that always used to tell me Java Rook stories in, in his very short time in California. And it was with Johnny Mad, double tough son of a bitch, hell of a good guy. Just one of those old timer tough guys that everybody liked and respected. Tell me a little bit about Johnny Rods and his relationship with WWE, because I've always been curious as to how he wound up in the WWE hall of fame on Vince's watch. Is this just uh, paying homage to his, when his dad ran the company was, was Johnny tight with Vince senior. What can you tell us about that? Well, when you look at any hall of fame and you look at any top guy, those top guys didn't get there by themselves. So they had to have someone help them get over and they had to have someone pave the way for them. Johnny Rods was one of those guys that was put in a position to get people over. And that was his job. And without talent like Johnny Rods, like, uh, Jose Luis Rivera, uh, Jose Estrada, you, you wouldn't have top guys because they had to have somebody to work with and somebody to beat and get them over. And, Johnny Rod's contribution, in, in my opinion, he was so good at his job and doing what he did. It, without a doubt, he was had a Hall of Fame career because he worked to get all of those ha Hall of Famers over to the point of being in the Hall of Fame. Well, and again, he goes in the Hall of Fame 1996, and we've talked about this before, but that happens the night before Survivor Series 96 at MSG, and I think that's when uh, Snooker went in and then competed in a match the very next day, but... 
we're talking about Taz today and he, uh, he trains Taz for like nine and a half months. And well, even when Taz got into the business, I think he was like 275 pounds. He was already rocking a Mohawk. So he kind of looked like a wrestler. Uh, and after he gets done training, he starts to do, uh, some work for, uh, Puerto Rico. I think it's a small company running opposition to WWC down there. What do you, what can you tell us about Puerto Rican wrestling? Because a lot of us, like, I'll be honest. I don't really think a lot of us, myself included, know that there are multiple territories in Puerto Rico. I think most of us just assume there's just one big company that sort of runs roughshod over the island. Uh, and, and it's been notorious at different times. Any good Puerto Rico stories pop to mind? Well, you know, back in the day, there's always only been one major promotion in Puerto Rico, which was run by Carlos Colon and Javica and those guys. And there were from time to time be opposition that would come in and try to run the island. They usually didn't last that long. I think Savio Vega's company was probably one that did better than any of the rest. Um, but Puerto Rico was a nice place to go. If you worked the Florida territory, you could just get down to Puerto Rico, do some shots. And the champion, uh, the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, it was always a good, easy place to go because you could be on the beach and have your match with Carlos and get the hell out of Dodge. Well, and he does get the hell out of Dodge and starts working the Indies. And that's where he hooks up with another guy we're all familiar with Mr. Tommy dreamer. And I think when they started riding together, Tommy only had like six matches under his belt. Uh, so they start riding together and that probably had a lot to do with the fact that Taz had like a $500 shit box car and Tommy had a much better car. Uh, and during this era, Taz was working. So wait a minute. So Taz used Tommy for his car. Okay, we'll go with that if that's, if okay. that's what you want to I'm say. I'm just asking. Well, I'm just saying, hypothetically, don't you always ride with the guy with the nicer car? Like, Arn Anderson says that he used to ride with Ted DiBiase because DiBiase had the new wheels, right? Uh, it depended. Okay, cool. I can, I can tell it, you. Well, gonna... no, it was, it was like Michael Hayes always didn't have the best car, but Michael was the best wheel man. I got you. So you went with the guy that, that could get you there quick without getting stopped and was was a good was just a good wheel man. Um, I don't know. I guess some guys went with the nicer car. Well, that's what Taz was doing here. Maybe Tommy was the better wheel man, whatever. But at this time, both of these guys are cutting their teeth. Taz isn't even Taz yet. In fact, here he's kid crush. And later he would become the Tasmaniac. and the Tasmaniac is an interesting look. We'll get to that in a minute, but Taz had been in the business about six years before he could make wrestling a full-time job. He had worked, uh, I think on like the, uh, long Island railroad system before that. What's the, the standard? Like if you've got one of our listeners listening right now, it decides, Hey, I want to make, make my way in the wrestling business. What would you say is the average amount of time somebody's in the business before they can make a full-time living? I know it's different now and it's, it's different for everybody, but six years in that era, that sounds about right to me. Well, I'm still trying to figure it out. I've been doing it for 46 years and trying to figure out how to make it. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's think... a full-time gig. So it varies for everybody along the line. However, you know, during that time, I think that there was, you know, it, it really depended, but it took a few years before you could ever really get to a place where you could go from territory to territory and make a steady living. Yeah. And I think maybe a lot of our listeners just assume. And I know I thought this when I was younger too. Oh, there we go. Hashtag Millie light. 
Uh, those guys are on TV, so they've got to be millionaires. I remember as a kid, I just thought whoever did the local news was probably independently wealthy. Well, that is not always the case and certainly not in wrestling. And Taz is no different, uh, struggling because, uh, well, in that era, and I guess we could talk about it now, you needed to look like, uh, well, the ultimate warrior or Hulk Hogan. I mean, it is the land of the giants in professional wrestling. And that was not exactly what Taz looked like here. Uh, when you first hear, I mean, did you hear of the Taz maniac or did you hear of Taz first? When was the first time Taz was on your radar? Because he starts to get a little bit of a rep on the Indies and gets a little bit of attention and after mags and things like that with this Tasmaniac character. And that's really the first way we see him in Eastern and then e- extreme championship wrestling. Yeah. I, I might've seen Taz. Oh God. I want to, I want to say it was with the Savoldi group out of New Jersey, but I remember Taz being with a guy by the name of Tony rumble, um, who was a big independent guy, the Boston bad boy, Tony rumble. Super nice guy, but he was he was the epitome of of indie wrestling, uh, especially at the time. But it was pictures, I think, and I, I want to say I saw him on Savoli's show as best I can remember. But he had a cute little gimmick with his little fringe and the little uh, over the shoulder garment that he wore. Sound like Paul Bosch doing play by play now. Um, painted his face up and was a Tasmaniac. Yeah. So the idea is he's the Tasmaniac from Tasmania. And I think Tony rumble is really the first person to sort of help Taz and give him his first big break. He tells him about ECW. And at the time, Eddie Gilbert and Paul Heyman were booking. And I think Taz told him he already knew Paul and Tony told him that he should try to come down to Philadelphia, but we should mention before he gets this break in ECW, he actually had a tryout. With the WWF. Now that happened on August 19th, 1991. I had no idea this happened. And then some point over the summer, it popped up on social media and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. He, he loses to a guy named Ray Odyssey and they had been working matches on the independence, but now they have an opportunity to do it on the big stage. And I know it August of 91, you weren't there, but that is sort of fun to think about. What could have been, do you think there would have been a place for the Tasmaniac in 1991's WWF? I I don't know. I I really don't think so. Just based on his size alone. And I were, you know, I recall meeting Taz for the first time. It had to be when I came back in 92 and I was thinking about this, you know, when I knew we were doing the show, wondering about when was the last time I or the first time. Sorry. Hey, I had a lot of fucking dental work today too. Okay. I had screws shoved up in my fucking mouth and I'm getting used to it. Sorry. Well, you gotta get Uh, hot about it. I am hot about it. And you know what, by the way, while I'm talking about being hot about shit, fuck Comcast business cable, fuck Comcast business. They're a piece of shit fucking organization. I hope they rot in hell. This segment of the show is not brought to you by Comcast and well, probably, yeah, fuck, please no. don't ever fucking fall for that Comcast business fucking horse shit. You'll be out of goddamn business fucking assholes, ass white motherfuckers. Fuck them. Um, anyway, so the first time that I remember meeting <laughs> Taz. <laughs> you okay? Seriously, man, they screwed shit up into my fucking uh, mouth today. 
and all I could hear was screws turning in my head and it's, it's driving me nuts. Yeah. I, I know the feeling I'm trying to talk about Taz and you're having a little one man pity party. God damn it. So anyway, <laughs> first time, <laughs> well, no, listen. first time I recall running into Taz was in Lowell, Massachusetts. And I was thinking about this just the other day about how many things actually happened there in Lowell, Massachusetts, or at least on that fucking run of TVs because Lowell was a mainstay. Lowell was someplace that we always went to. And I remember, uh, Taz downstairs, uh, in the locker room coming up and introducing himself as Taz, uh, nice as could be. Uh, and I liked the gimmick. I thought, okay, you know, he's not the biggest guy in the world, but I like the gimmick and I thought the gimmick could be something for kids. And I also thought, no oh, shit, Vince will be on that. Maybe Vince is mighty mouse. You never know. Um, but I thought that it was a, a really cool kind of kid friendly gimmick that I thought we could have done something with, but it just never really materialized. Taz has uh, gone on record as saying that he was told when he got this trial in 91, that they were looking for someone to work with Owen Hart on house shows, but Owen blew his knee out and that ended those plans for Taz. And I guess the reason they may have called Taz is they were looking for, uh, and this was typical when you were working, trying to sort of shine a light on the other guy, you want to have a shorter guy. And in, in addition to that, he's Northeast based, So it may have kept your costs down. Um, but again, let's keep it rolling. He gets another shot with WCW doesn't work out in 91, uh, with WWF, but early, I think February of 93, he gets a dark match with WCW. He picks up a win over Joey mags. And uh, I think that would have been bill Watts era. So he probably liked, you know, the legitimate athletic background of Taz being a college wrestler and a judo background. Uh, but it's been said that perhaps Mike Graham didn't like him and Mike Graham was not the biggest guy in the world either, but he's often been, you know, on record as being a very, uh, polarizing figure. I don't know when we'll talk about Mike Graham again. You got any good Mike Graham stories you can share with us. I knew a girl in Houston that used to love to shave Mike Graham's legs. Um, wait, wait, wait hang on. That's the most. Uh, do I need to rewind Mike Graham, but his legs and there's a girl. What now? Yeah. There was a girl in Houston when Mike used to come in and do shots for us. He used to love to shave his legs. And, and, and how, and how do you know this? She told me. And, um, I assume she was a Riz at. I mean, she was, was a very nice young lady. Yeah. I think that was the term back then, but what, what you and Mike were, um, running in the same circle, so to speak. No, 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 no. She just took it upon herself one day to tell me that, uh, oh my God, I just can't wait for Mike to come back. I love to shave his legs. And I said, really? Now I kind of looked at my legs and went, eh, I don't know. Okay. Well, that's, let's move along here. Uh, Taz does wrestle some in smoky mountain wrestling. And I think he becomes uh, friends with your brother. Uh, Tom there, and he has another tryout match. Everybody likes Tom. Everybody. May of 93, he gets a win over Scott Taylor. Uh, wrestles a few more matches at the time against uh, Jim Powers. I think those were like New Jersey house shows. And once again, they're looking for someone to work with Owen Hart. But during his match with Jim Powers, he busts Jim's mouth open with a clothesline. And uh, 
Yeah. That's probably the end of that. I think the agents are going to ask him why he hit him so hard. And I mean, I guess if you've got a tryout and you're, you're stiff on the guys who are regulars, probably not the best look, huh? Well, I think if you're stiff in general, especially in that time, you know, the idea of the business is not to be so stiff and you can work snow, but not to hurt people and, and bust them open. So if that's the case, I, I don't remember that, but I could also see that if that happening guys saying, fuck, I don't want to work with him. Is he, if he's going to bust me open. Sure. Well, from there, he gets a uh, shot to work with Jerry Lawler in Memphis. Uh, he's not able to afford to stay there very long. I think he's only in there a couple of weeks. So. The search continues and that's when that fateful call from Tony rumble, uh, comes and, uh, he has an opportunity to work some ECW shows. October 1st, 1993 is when Paul Heyman would call him and ask him to come into ECW to wrestle Sabu. And that's obviously going to be the biggest break of his career up to that point, because even in early 93 or, or the fall of 93, Sabu was developing a reputation on the independence as being a big star. And in this course of this conversation, I think Paul says, I can't promise you anything more than, than two matches, but if we like your work, we'll go from there. And of course the rest was history. Uh, not long after he winds up there, he starts teaming with Kevin Sullivan and, uh, they wound up winning the tag titles a couple of times. And in August of 94, there's the famous eight man tournament to crown the NWA world heavyweight champion. And Taz would lose to Shane Douglas, who of course will go on to win the title and then throw down the NWA title and rename Eastern championship wrestling, the extreme championship wrestling promotion. You're a, you're old school. You grew up on the NWA by 94 though. It was not what it once was. I don't know that we've spent a ton of time talking about that, but were you shocked that this went down? Did you feel like it was a double cross on Coraluzo? what did you think of your friend, Paul Heyman sort of pulling the double cross here? At the time, didn't really think that much of it. It just was another angle to me. And for all I knew, at that point, really, the NWA was just three letters. Um, it didn't mean anything. So from from that vantage point, it wasn't like, oh, my God. Um, it was an angle. That's really all it, all it amounted to. And it was a way for, I guess, Paul and those guys to – put themselves on the map with their Eastern championship wrestling and, uh, get ECW off the ground. Well, they get things going and, uh, let's fast forward to July 95. They're in Fort Lauderdale and, and check out this at a house show for ECW in July 95. You got the Tasmaniac and Eddie Guerrero on one side, taking on Dean Malenko and two cold Scorpio. Man, that's so much great talent there. And during the match, there's a spike pile driver that goes wrong. Taz lands wrong and, uh, he's hurt pretty bad. He winds up going to the hospital, has a hairline fracture in his C5 herniates the disc and tears a shitload of muscle fibers in his neck. So he's out for like seven months. This is his full-time job. He's just gotten married. He had just gotten back from his honeymoon a couple of weeks before this happened. And now he can't earn a living. And to our surprise. ECW was still paying him every single week. And at the time this happened, Taz was a baby face, but when it's time for him to come back to TV, he shows up with Joey styles, but not as Tasmaniac as Peterson Urcha. And you see a new Taz here. He's dressed like a civilian, not this crazy Tasmanian character. Got all his hair cut off and 
Joey's just referring to him as Taz. And this is sort of the rebirth of the Taz character. It would work as a, a special guest referee at November to remember, which was sort of their annual event. This is pre pay-per-view, but it's their big event. And, uh, Bill Alfonso is going to take on, uh, Todd Gordon and Taz is the special guest ref. And he's going to refuse to count to three and attack Gordon and his po- post-match promo. Uh, he's going to make it clear that he's been injured and no one gave a shit. And this is really the first time we see the version of Taz that we know today. And of course that means Alfonso is his second at this point. And there's another guy in the territory here, a young upstart with long blonde hair named Steve Austin. How about that? It's weird to think about all the, all the talent that went through ECW at a time when man, they were balling on a budget to say the least. Without a doubt, I think that it was, you know, it, it was a showcase and it was a place that you could go where, for example, you couldn't get in WWE, you couldn't get into WCW. I think ECW was always there with open arms to say, hey, if you can work and you can go, come in here and it's a nice stop along the way. I don't know that many at least in the fringe, looked at it as, wow, I want to go to ECW and stay in ECW. But it was a place to hone your skill. And it was a place to get noticed because they were making noise at the time. So why not fucking head in there and and get your name out, at least out to those that are looking around for talent. So it was, yeah, ECW, I think, was always, especially being based in the Northeast, it was always a place that, if you look for talent, go look and see what they've got. Well, the motivation for this newfound, or uh, as you like to say, uh, a fresh paint of coat for Taz is that, you know, these fans who say they love ECW, they didn't send him any cards. They didn't call to check on him. And, uh, he's now bitter and upset. And that seems sort of similar to the way the rock would join the nation of domination and say, you know, you fans turned your back on me and I was a good guy. Um, and then, you know, sort of giving Taz something to sink his teeth into it's time for his legendary feud with Sabu. And that would be really the first thing that he does. He starts calling Sabu out. Sabu won't ever answer the response. Uh, and, and then when it finally does, it's a big deal. And for whatever reason, these guys in real life didn't exactly click. Isn't it true that most of the time that's where guys draw their best money? I mean, we've heard that you know, triple H and the rock were very competitive and didn't always get along behind the scenes. And we've heard the same thing of Austin and rock. And when you have folks competing and they're not best of friends, that usually results in the best product for fans. Does it not? Absolutely. Because you're always trying to one up the other guy. Uh, It, it is, it runs to the extreme. Either the best of friends are going to go out there and tear it down every night out of friendship and respect or out of jealousy, just professional jealousy, two guys not particularly liking the other, trying to one-up them constantly. Either way, it's going to work. So um, the fact that they didn't like each other or hit it off, that makes for real drama, and you feel it. The audience feels if you're performing or if you're out there and you're actually really reacting. Let's, uh, let's talk about raw in 1996. We've touched on this before, but there is an incident in the front row of in your house mind games in September of 1996, 
Paul Heyman seated there with Sandman and Tommy dreamer. We've talked about that in our archives when we cover ECW at something to wrestle.com. But the day after the show on Monday night, Raw, we've got Owen Hart and British bulldog defending the tag titles against skip and your brother zip the body Donna's. And during the match, all of a sudden an ECW champ breaks out and Taz jumps over the ringside barricade, bringing the match to a temporary halt. And he's holding up an orange sign with black text that says Sabu fears Taz and Jim Ross mentions it almost as if it were a shoot, never mentioning ECW by name, but referring to it as some local outfit that wrestles out of a bingo hall, trying to get their 15 minutes of fame. So to tell me how this continuation of an angle, which we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about before came to life here on raw. This is during the time we were obviously working with ECW and making sure that they were in business. They had a pay-per-view coming up and it asked for some help. So we had agreed to give Paul some exposure on raw for his company and for his upcoming pay-per-view. Uh, later on, the deal was brokered with Lawler, but it also was it was funny this one in particular, when the guys jumped over the railing and Lawler got involved and Lawler was working with him. And I think Alfonso was shocked that Lawler was working and Lawler's throwing working punches and Bill's like, Oh, Hey man, you're working great. And Jerry's like, what the fuck else am I going to do? Um, and, and I think that Taz thought that it was an opportunity where, Somebody was going to take, be unprofessional and take a shot at him on live TV. There was a lot of distrust. And, and I don't know if Paul bred that, but pre- Paul bred a lot of that into his talent. It's us against them. And we will go and take their show over. So that was, you know, that was a feeling. And that helped the feeling that you felt on television as well. But it was it was a way to promote their upcoming pay-per-view and get some of their guys out in front of the audience. We did it on the uh, pay-per-view the Sunday before, and then they showed up there, and I thought it was good television. Did you have a chance to spend any time with Taz during that, you know, Sunday or Monday? No, no, not at all. I did everything through Paul. And I believe, uh, I don't know. I don't think I did talk to Taz at all. All right, Bruce, let's run a timeout right now and tell everybody how to save some money. Of course, we're talking about savewithconrad.com. And I'm talking to you if you're a veteran. I've been having some conversations with some of our veteran listeners lately, and I don't think they realize just how easy it is to save money. First of all, you can use 100% of the equity in your house to consolidate some debt, to pay off some bills. And oh, by the way, you get to skip your next two house payments. So as you're listening to me right now, you won't make a payment until next year. And come next year, of course, you're going to have a better mortgage. I can almost guarantee it. Here's how your house is probably worth a lot more than what you paid for it when you bought it, because our real estate values in America are very, very strong. But in addition to that, it's probably a cheaper interest rate you can get right now than when you first bought your house, because rates are at historic lows. And if you've never used your VA benefit, what are you waiting for? It really is the best loan possible. And it is super, super easy to get. It's even easier to take advantage of these rates. If you're currently in a VA loan about no documentation. In most cases, we don't even need an appraisal. I know it sounds too good to be true, but we can do it for you. And even if you're not a veteran, we can hook you up. You don't need perfect credit. Even credit scores in the 500s will qualify. And if we can't save you some money, we won't waste your time. But if you're in a 30 year loan, I can cut years off your loan and keep you in the same payment. Or maybe you're just looking to get rid of some credit card debt. We can get that too. 
Maybe it's time to pull some cash out to upgrade your kitchens or bathrooms. Whatever you're looking for, we can make it fast and easy, and you'd be dealing with me. Check it out right now. Savewithconrad.com. That's savewithconrad.com. NLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh, by the way, we're in like 40 states now, Bruce. I thought I thought I was going to tell them about it. Well, you can go ahead. Hey, the shit's legit, is it not, Bruce? Savewithconrad.com. Yeah, you dig red.com. Yeah, you dig. One of the things I, uh, I wanted to mention is that for whatever reason in this era, Taz started to develop a bit of a reputation that the on-screen character we saw, well, that's how Taz was in real life. He didn't get along with a lot of the guys and it's been rumored that he didn't get along with Rob Van Dam or Sabu or. He just took himself very seriously. I think is the way a lot of people would categorize it. And maybe some others would say that he was standoffish or he was rude or he was stuck up or however you want to paint it. Because I think even Taz would say he wasn't the most social person he kept to himself. And in wrestling, it can be very political. Even when you don't mean to be, how often do you think guys who were sort of standoffish and quiet and kept to themselves and just weren't very social were painted with the rude or hard to deal with brush. I I think a lot of them, and it's a situation where depending upon your personality, if you keep to yourself and you don't go to the bar and you don't hang out and do all the shit that, you know, the, the gang is doing, then you're, you're labeled. Oh, he's aloof. He, he's too good for all of us. Um, I don't know. Taz was ever a big part of your, I don't know that Taz, you know, I know he wasn't one of those guys that liked to hang out and do extracurricular activities or, uh, didn't dabble in, uh, drugs or anything like that. So Taz did his own thing. So he may have come off as aloof, but even in later years, Taz kind of always hung by himself and he took care of business. He, He was there to do a job and he was there to earn a living. He wasn't necessarily there to make friends and influence people. He was there to do a job and make a living. So if you take the time to get to know him after a while, you realize there's actually a human being under there and not a bad guy, but I don't know that Taz wanted everybody to know that. We should also mention that somewhere around here is when a backstage incident with Rob Van Dam and Taz would take place. And this would become sort of legendary and it's like you say, the old telephone, telegram, telewrestler. And there's lots of different versions, but I think Rob has been on Taz's podcast a few times. And they've talked about this where there was some tag match somewhere and Taz accidentally clipped Rob Van Dam in the head with his knee and Rob was hurt from this, but Taz didn't know he just continues the match, but Taz didn't go apologize after. And Taz would say he didn't apologize because he didn't think he hurt him. He thought he just bumped into him. But obviously a knee being, you know, pretty hard part of your body, you can do some damage. And he did some to Rob. And when he didn't get his apology, he called Paul and a lot of guys have said over the years that Paul Heyman liked to keep it stirred up amongst the boys. Can you attest to that? Yeah, I think so. I think Paul, Paul bred that within his locker room. He had to, you know, when, when Paul was running, Paul presented it as he was running opposition to the world right or wrong that inspired a lot of guys and Paul would do whatever he could do to inspire his talent, get him fired up. 
Well, he was doing it here. So by the time Rob comes back, uh, for another set of, uh, house show loops or well, the, the next tour, whatever it may have been, uh, at the time, Rob Van Dam, Sabu and Fonzie were all traveling together. And one by one, everybody goes to say hello to everybody in the locker room. And as they get the Taz, Fonzie comes through and then Sabu and then Rob Van Dam hits him with the old pick a hand and slapped him for real. And Taz would say, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Uh, you know, he had some, his mind was somewhere else and he thinks everything's cool. We just had a tag match. What in the world could be wrong? And it turns out that Van Dam was fired up about the errant knee and there could have been a major fight. There was not a major fight. And these sort of backstage scuffles for better or worse, sort of become legendary in wrestling because fans and the boys can't get enough of this sort of fantasy booking backstage. When did you hear about this Rob Van Dam Taz pick a hand game? Oh God. I never heard about it till many, many years later when Rob was in the WWE. I definitely didn't hear about it then. So I don't know that it, it was such of a big thing. Then it probably grew into legend as more and more people repeated the story and it probably grew in, in, Oh, and I, I, I heard that Taz pulled a knife and I heard that, you know, the uh, Sabu had a bazooka. I mean, you know, I don't know, but uh, this shit just grows and gets blown out of proportion sometimes, you know, so much. So again, being in the business and being around, uh, I'd never heard the story till Van Dam was working with us in many years after he'd been working with us. Well, everybody's going to be working with you on the February 24th, 97 raw. This is when ECW would invade raw. And they actually have some matches on the show where Taz would defeat Mikey Whiprick on the show. And during the course of the match, Sabu would jump off the raw letters that are in the aisle way for the entrance onto Taz's entourage, which at the time was known as team Taz. He had like a UFC style entrance group and everybody was wearing the track suits and things like that. This is kind of cool though. In this era to see somebody jump off the letters. What do you remember about that? Why did you guys never think of doing that? And I don't know. It's, it's still a visual. I remember all these years later, Sabu jumping off the letters. Yeah, it was, it was cool as shit. And it was, you know, Sabu was known for doing these wild dives and a lot of this high risk shit. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool if, and he got there and absolutely no hesitation whatsoever. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> you know, it's all right. Well, that'll be cool. And, uh, as they say, that was a highlight reel that was, it was used for a long time. And I don't, I don't know that we ever did, did that with anyone else. This is an interesting show because, uh, we're trying to draw the line between WWF and ECW, and we're trying to sell their barely legal pay-per-view. Jerry Lawler is going to go. Uh, pretty hardcore on Taz here on commentary saying things like he looked bigger on the lucky charms box, sort of comparing him to a leprechaun. Uh, and then later Taz would uh, come out and grab Jerry by the front of his jacket. They have to be separated. Of course, we know that's going to lead to Jerry working with ECW this, this whole two promotions working together here to take down WCW and the NWO and, you know, it's just fascinating to me because it doesn't feel like something Vince would ever consider in 2019. I never say never. You know, I think that it was probably something that people thought he would never consider then, but 
as I've always said, the answer is no until you ask the question. So throwing some shit out there, it was like, oh, okay, you know, why not? So it was, I think it was, it was a good time and it was, it was a why not moment. So let's, let's work with people and, and see what can happen. Well, we finally pay off more than a year of Taz calling out Sabu with their first pay-per-view, barely legal. They even are the poster for that pay-per-view and they have quite the intense match to the point that Taz actually knocks Sabu out in the first couple of minutes. And eventually Taz goes on to win the match. He cements his spot as a top guy in ECW after the match, RVD would attack Taz. And then Alfonso would turn his back on Taz and join RVD and Sabu. So there's a, a big angle here going after a huge match. One of the most anticipated in ECW history. And it's a monumental night, April 13th, 1997. The first ECW pay-per-view. Did you watch that one live or did you catch a VHS another time? I did. I watched it. I watched it live. I talked to Paul throughout the night and that's the infamous, uh, at the end of the night when I talked to Paul and he said, what'd you think? And I said, well, unfortunately, I think that, uh, that you guys got exposed a little bit tonight. He says, well, that's a good thing. I said, no, unfortunately the bell rang. Oh, fuck off. No, that's, that's a true fucking story. Ask Paul about it. And what I meant by that was Paul Heyman had done such a great job. You want, wait, did you watch it live? No, I couldn't get it. Uh, my cable system didn't have it. I had to watch oh, it. on. You can watch it and tell me that was a great fucking pay-per-view. Honestly, it was terrible. And it was from the standpoint of, I think that people were hyped up on the talent and on ECW from the television show. And the television show was a highlight reel, highly edited, highly stylized with great music. And Paul took all the weaknesses away from his talents. If there was a weakness, Paul would never, ever show it on television. It was, it was heavily edited and put together in, in a great way that when you watch the show, it was an exciting hour, but you didn't see matches on ECW, right? You saw highlights, you saw promos. So now these guys are going out and having 15, 20 minute matches. And you're watching it going, oh, fuck, this is long and boring and terrible. They're, oh my God, this guy, you know, when all you would see is the best two moves someone does. And now you're watching them work a match. It's 15, 20 minutes long. And you're going, Ooh, that's bad. It was like nine one one was the biggest star, you know, that Paul had for a long time. But the only thing he could do was a choke slam. Was a choke slam. Yeah. Eventually, you gotta do something else. And this pay per view, the guys had to do something else. And I don't know that they were prepared for it. I do know they weren't. They weren't prepared for it. Well, it was a big show if you're an ECW fan because you were pulling for them and you felt like they were the underdog and you had been bought what you'd bought into what Paul Heyman was selling. So I understand why, you know, if you were a big ECW fan, you loved it, even if it, you know, in a vacuum wasn't maybe the best wrestling event. I was pulling for him. I wanted him to succeed heavily. We we were helping. We were banking on it. We were hoping they were going to succeed. Not too terribly long after this, uh, WrestlePalooza happens at the ECW arena. This is going to be Raven's last night, of course, but 
They're going to do a rematch here with Sabu and Taz. And this has a similar finish to survivor series 96 with Bret Hart and Steve Austin, where Taz locks in his submission on Sabu, but Sabu rolls backwards. And this actually pins Taz shoulders to the mat. One, two, three Sabu wins. And after the match, he starts calling out Shane Douglas. Who's in the crow's nest with Joey styles at the time. Shane Douglas is the television champion. Of course, Shane wants to jaw jack with him about, Hey, you just lost pal. And Taz says, well, that may be, but I can beat you in five minutes. They start the match. Sure enough, Taz becomes the ECW champion at the time. And you got to remember this is summer of 97. There's a lot of moving parts. Raven is on his way to WCW. Stevie Richards is going to be on his way to WCW. Mikey Whipwreck, not too far behind Sandman, not too far behind. And Taz at this time, wasn't very happy either. And Paul even tells Taz, maybe he should explore his options. And I think it was written somewhere that he had a conversation with Eric Bischoff about possibly going to WCW. Taz has denied this and says he does. He never spoke to Paul, uh, to Eric Bischoff, but perhaps that's just the rumor and innuendo. Um, did you ever hear that? Hey, Taz may be going to WCW. Maybe we should pursue him. Or was there anybody that stood out to you? Because when you see Raven and you see Whipwreck and you see Sandman and you see all these guys going to WCW, but you guys had a working relationship. Why weren't you in 1997 trying to pull some guys off? Well, I don't know. There was a whole lot of interest in the guys that you just mentioned. And we also had, you know, talked to Paul and Paul, I think was, he would tell you he was blindsided by some of them leaving um, or, you know, whether or not he was being completely honest with us or that he was truly blindsided. Um, only he knows for sure. But we would ask, I'm like, Paul, what the hell's going on here? Um, and he would say, hey, they left and I'm going to pursue legal action, what have you, which was was always the the mantra of sorts. But, you know, those, those weren't that wasn't somebody that we were really trying to get. Talk you know, Taz, I think was somebody that Russo liked without a doubt. I think Russo is the guy who originally recruited him for you guys. Did he not? Yes, he did. Oh, we'll get there. And we'll get there. Go ahead. No, we'll get there. I do want to talk about Taz in ECW because everybody in ECW wore a lot of hats and You've heard before that Bubba would say, Hey, I helped book the buildings and you know, Tommy dreamer would help drive the truck. And, uh, he was sort of the locker room leader and Taz ran the wrestling school, the house of hardcore. And he also did the designs for ECW's t-shirts at the time. When did you know that, uh, Hey, this guy Taz, there's more to him than what we see just in the ring. He's wearing a lot of other hats in ECW. Well, I'll tell you the, the the only thing that I really knew. Obviously, I knew that he was doing the um, wrestling school because, shit, they advertised it on their air, and, and Paul told me that was who was running their school. And I think Bubba had something to do with that, Bubba and Devon as well. Um, but what I tapped into Taz for was his connection for the, the, the warm-ups, the sweatsuits. They look sharp. They look good. And he Taz is the one who did all of that for him. And would get it. And I remember talking to him at that time about, Hey, 
we want those. <laughs> you know, we want to get some made for ours. They were really nice Adidas warm-ups and shit and just never seemed to work out. It is a cool look. I mean, you saw a lot of the ECW guys wearing that type of stuff. And every now and again, you'll see an old ECW original list theirs on eBay. Uh, but something that, you know, if going viral was a thing, uh, Taz would have gone viral in March of 98 at the living dangerously pay-per-view. He's held the television title, uh, since the prior summer at Wrestlepalooza. So we're like nine months in here and at living dangerously, he's got a match with Bam Bam Bigelow. And this is the very famous finish where Taz locks on the Taz mission on Bam Bam Bigelow and he jumps on his back and Bigelow takes a few steps backwards, falls backwards, and they go through the ring. I got to tell you, Bruce, this is like my first holy shit moment. This is the first time I had seen a spot like this where they go through the ring. Is, is this old hat at this point? And it's just the first time I'd seen it. Or when was the first time you remember seeing someone go through the ring like this? Oh, well, the first time I ever saw anybody go through the ring was Harley Race and Wahoo McDaniel in Houston, Texas, when Wahoo was pissed off and it was an Indian strap match. And we had an old ring that we had same ring for a hundred years. It was hard as concrete and Wahoo suplexed Harley Race in the same spot until the ring broke mm-hmm. and the fucking ring broke and didn't know what to do. And that's where Harley, I mean, uh, Wahoo had tied up Harley to a ring post and gotten a fight with Pat O'Connor, who was the referee for that match. And it was just one of those moments in my career, where my jaw was hanging down to my chest. Like, Oh my God, they're beating the shit out of each other. So that was the first time I ever saw anything like that. And, and that was a shoot. That was, that was real. He broke the fucking ring. Um, but I think it was just old. It was about time. It's probably termites that <laughs> fucking did it. Uh, but again, you know, at that time, I don't think I saw that until I saw it in their open in their show. Such, like, a, such a fucking cool moment. I mean, I remember where I was watching it when it happened. And of course, Bigelow would then pull an unconscious task from under the ring, pin him to win the title a year or so later, big show would choke slam undertaker through the ring on raw. I'm sure that had nothing to do with seeing it on ECW, right? No, it didn't. Yeah. Cause one's a choke and one's a choke slam. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Harley and Wahoo did it long before they did it. Okay, cool. They probably did it before Taz was born. Uh, after this Taz starts feuding with the ECW world champion, Shane Douglas and Douglas had been out of action for many months with a lot of injuries and, uh, Eventually this becomes an angle where Shane can't wrestle, even though Taz is in line for a title shot. So since Taz can't get a title shot, he's going to create his own title belt. And he called it the FTW championship. Uh, chat me up. What do you think Jim Cornette would, would say about the FTW title? Fun this Wednesday title. I don't get it. Motherfucker. How about go fuck yourself? What do you think of the motherfucker? Thank you. What do you think of the, uh, the concept? I can't get a title shot. I'll make my own and even calling it the fuck the world championship. That's tremendous. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it, it was, you know, I go back to Terry Funk when, when Terry did it in 1978 <laughs> and probably in Houston, Texas, right? 
Abs- no, actually, this is a funny story. Terry got in trouble for it with the NWA. Terry, now th- you got to think about this. This is like 1978. Um, I'm probably off on the year Clint from Hershey will probably say, actually, Bruce, it was 1977 and a half. And Terry, but Terry had a replica belt made wow. of the NWA belt. And Terry went and did this whole thing with Bill Lapter where he, he took pictures with the belt and everything and made claim to the world championship. And Terry went around and, and in the Northeast and different places and going around claiming to be the well, world champion. Hang on. He never ran it past anybody in the NWA. No. Wow. And so they got hot because he was using their belt. They're, you know, the same design. It looked exactly the same. And. Terry's like, Hey, it's just a fucking, you know, it's an angle. <laughs> I'm making my own belt. You know, a lot of guys, Moscaris had his own belt. A lot of guys had their own belts, um, uh, back in the day. And they'd go from territory to territory and defend their championship, drop it, and then always win it back right before they left. And then that belt would disappear. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous idea. So Ted DiBiase had done it with the million dollar belt years before that. Yeah, I mean, and you guys ripped off all that with Ric Flair coming in as the real world's champion. So, you know, it's whatever. Uh, Taz and Douglas. Well, that little, little belt he had? Piff. Fuck off. Uh, Taz and uh, Shane Douglas finally meet guilty as charged January 1999. Taz beats Shane Douglas, becomes the world champion. So Taz is champ for 252 days. He's heading into anarchy rules and he's supposed to be facing Masato Tanaka for the world title, but he sees judge Jeff Jones and Mike awesome in the crowd. He calls out Mike awesome. They turn it into an impromptu three way and it's an elimination match. So I think everybody assumes, well, that means Tanaka will be out first. It'll come down to awesome and Taz, but that's not what they do. Instead, Taz is out first. Now it had leaked that Taz was at least in conversation with someone else. Uh, so the fans weren't totally surprised. You could hear some chants here or there. Uh, but Paul Heyman and the rest of the ECW crew, very thankful for Taz's contributions to the company. So they would actually come watch the finish of the match on the ramp and then give him a bit of a standing ovation. Uh, Meltzer would report in September of 99, just one month after numerous public announcement of Taz signing a three-year contract with ECW comes the revelation that Taz is expected by all parties involved to ink a new deal with the WWF. And to be clear here, uh, I don't think Taz ever signed a contract with ECW. It was always just a handshake with him and Paul, but they certainly had agreed in principle to an extension. Uh, Meltzer would say the current ECW champion who is expected to drop the title, uh, imminently with most suspecting the change would take place at the September 19th pay-per-view show will be with ECW through the end of the year. After a series of agreements that went down involving Paul Heyman, Taz and Vince McMahon. So talk to us a little bit about how this came to be, because it, this is when ECW is, is on TV, you know, they finally secured a, a TNN deal and you see lots of guys leaving, you know, all of a sudden the WWF, which has always been there to help and lend a hand Well, the Dudleys are out of here and Van Dam's talking and now. Taz is out of here. What do you remember about the way the, the deal comes together for Taz to come in? 
Oh boy. It's a convoluted story and kind of a convoluted deal because Russo had contacted Taz unbeknownst to Jim Ross or myself. And Jim was the head of talent relations and Jim was pissed, uh, that, that Russo was contacting talent and, and agreeing to terms and deals and things that that was JR's job. And, and then informing JR after the fact, and here Jim is, he's got a, deal with contracts. Jim's got to deal with the budget and managing the department. And this guy's over here making side deals. So, you know, that was, that was Taz. (laughs) That was the side deal. And we were just kind of told, make the deal with Taz, which became problematic at times because Russo had no idea what the hell he was doing in contract negotiations and would say, yeah, 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 yeah. And, the guys would take that is it's a done deal. Well, it's not a done deal till you actually get a contract. And, and Jim and Vince were the ones at that time that were deciding who's getting paid what and what the contract terms were. So I also had to deal with Taz's agent or attorney or, or whatever, who was not one of my favorite people. Um, was that Barry Bloom or was that somebody else? No, it was, uh, I think it was Brad Smalls at the time, but I, I didn't, Barry wasn't one of my favorite people at the time either. I didn't like agents as a whole. So is, is Barry Bloom like one of, by the office? I mean, one of the most hated people in the history of wrestling, not the boys, the boys who use him love him, but it does feel like most all, whenever you talk to a guy from the office, whether it's Eric Bischoff or you, there's not a lot of nice things to be said about Barry Bloom from the office perspective. No, there's not. All right. I, I like Barry personally. I mean, I, I'm fine with Barry personally, uh, having to deal with Barry in early years when I was not used to having to deal with agents or managers or anything like that was a pain in the ass. Sure. So I wasn't a big fan. So Jr. feels slighted because Vince Russo and Vince McMahon have gone around him. You're dealing with an agent that you don't really like. At what point does it come to pen to paper? Well, on top of that. Yeah, you know, I've got a relationship with Paul. So no one told me that, hey, we're we're talking to, you know, an ECW talent, Taz, and and Paul's getting blindsided by this. Uh Paul's calling me thinking that, hey, you you're talking to my talent directly. I thought we had an agreement. And I said, I'm not talking to anybody directly. And if I was I would have called you first, like I had done with everyone else. If we were ever interested in someone, I called Paul first and said, Hey, let's deal with this guy. So when I did get involved in it, it it was after the fact and, um, you know, deal had pretty much already been made. So it was, there wasn't a whole lot to talk about, but you know, Paul insisted he was under contract. And Taz insisted he was not. I said, produce a contract and, you know, we'll have our lawyers look at it and see what we can and can't do. I don't know that any contract was ever presented because there was a deal done with Taz and everybody moved on. Well, I think the story from Taz over the years has been Russo was the one who pursued him, which checks out with you. And maybe there was a little heat on the JR side because he felt like he'd been bypassed and. I think Taz sort of made the terms with Vince McMahon face to face. And if you believe Taz, he says, Hey, I want to leave the right way. And he wanted to give 
you know, plenty of notice. So even though Taz drops the belt here, he doesn't actually debut for you guys until January. When did you find out, Hey, he's in, but we can't use him until next year. And were there any conversations that you know of about potential Mm -hmm. character changes or did you want Taz just the way he was? I, I don't recall the, you know, I recall that, Hey, we've got Taz now and this is when he's going to start. And that was about it. It wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot to discuss at that point other than this is where we are, make it work and, and move on. So it, you know, wasn't this big, big, huge deal. He was coming in as Taz and next, you know, like I said, it was, it was Paul had, had expressed that he had him under contract, never produced a contract or never produced anything that would make us go back and say, we can't do this. Right. So it, it was done and Taz was set to join the roster. As far as the presentation goes, you know, sometimes when you bring a guy in, you want him and you see the talent there, but you want a different character. You don't, you want, as you would say, a, a fresh paint of coat. But with Taz, all you guys do is add a Z for the most part. There's Taz. I know some of our listeners may not understand what we're talking about. Explain adding a Z and why it was necessary from your, you guys perspective. We had a Z in trademark it. Uh, the Taz, the Taz name T-A-Z was attributed to the Tasmanian devil and owned by Warner brothers, I believe. Well, so that's going to bring the natural question. The follow-up is. Well, how did ECW get away with using it? Explain that. I don't think that Warner Brothers or anybody from Warner Brothers really cared that ECW was using it. Yeah, there you go. They didn't know. So we just get a lot of questions sometimes. Like, how was ECW allowed to play the music? Do you want to explain that? Because nobody was watching it that (laughs) mattered to say, hey, that's my music. Yeah, I mean, it was below the radar. You know, don't ask, don't tell, and, and that's sort of it. Uh, but you know, when Taz comes in, even though you do add a Z, you don't use a lot of the other nomenclature. You you don't refer to him as the, um, you know, any of the gimmicks he had one man crime spree, spree or human suplex machine or orange and black attack or any of the stuff that he had tried to push on the ECW side. You don't push any of that. Is that because maybe Taz had prior use for all that? And you guys just wanted to own the new stuff going forward. Like we're so familiar with and every other. WWE deal. I don't think that Vince was really sold on it and, and didn't really like that and wanted to make it his own. So just create your own and move on. It, it didn't want to refer back. And I don't think Taz really wanted to be too much off of the ECW fame. He wanted to create his, his own name and his own mark in WWE. His last televised match is November 13th on hardcore TV. Uh, he receives a rematch against Mike awesome, which he loses his final pay-per-view is November to remember 99. He loses to Rob Van Dam, the television champion. And, uh, you know, Taz has gone on record as saying that during his world title reign, he started to lose his passion. He was world champion and headlining pay-per-views, but felt like now what? You know, he had sort of checked all the boxes. There was nothing really to accomplish left in ECW. And he says that once he made the deal to leave ECW and go to the WWF, things between him and Paul started to get bad. And Paul's 
probably going to contend that he thought he and Taz had an agreement that he was going to stay in ECW. And I think even Taz would say we did verbally agree, but he felt like Paul wouldn't be able to live up to his end of the financial agreement. So he decided to take the WWF's offer. Did you ever have a conversation about the way things come to an end with Taz and Paul here and maybe hurt feelings on Paul's side? Yeah, Paul, I think, I think Paul was hurt and Paul was upset because it felt like at the time that Paul's, you know, everybody was rats off a sinking ship. Everybody was kind of abandoning ship and the guys that maybe Paul felt he was closest with and had the best relationship were also leaving now, uh, Taz case in point. So yeah, I, I think Paul was hurt. You know, and it's happening at a time, as we said earlier, you know, the, the Dudleys are out that August too. So there's just a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving and going, uh, let's talk about Royal rumble. It's 2000. We're in Madison square garden. We've got Kurt angle in the ring, cutting a promo. He's undefeated and he's been pushing uh, the three eyes. So he's going to do that to the, this New Yorker crowd. They're having nothing to do with it. And then the heartbeat and the orange show up on the screen and fans who were online know what's coming here comes t-a-z-z uh what do you think of this 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 match because this is going to be a match that a lot of people are going to point to and say this is the beginning of the end for taz and in the wwf i thought the match was decent it was all right it wasn't it wasn't great but it was a good match it was a solid match from two you know two guys that worked that style um it wasn't terrible, but it just was, I think Taz had, uh, in the garden and maybe I think he had psyched himself out a little bit. It's a big deal going into the garden for your first time and kid from Brooklyn, especially against an Olympic gold medalist who's undefeated. I mean, that's, you know, I know, I know one of those things is sort of wanking and odd undefeated, but Olympic gold medalist is legit. And he's also compared to Taz, as far as being a, an in-ring competitor, fairly green. I mean, this isn't the Kurt angle of 2019. This is a young Kurt angle. It was. Yeah. And it was somebody that, that we had high hopes for. And I think that Taz, you know, it just, I don't know. I think that their styles were a little too similar and it just didn't mesh for whatever reason. Again, I don't know that Vince had ever seen Taz work. Well, he saw it this night and Taz has done interviews over the years where he says he saw Shane McMahon right before he goes out and Shane says, Hey, uh, can you retape your wrists? We don't, we don't really want to put FTW on TV. And this is right in the middle of the attitude era, you know, where, you know, Austin's coming to the ring, wearing a BMF on his jacket and on video cassettes that the company would release. Uh, JR would ask Austin, Hey, what does BMF stand for? And unedited on this video cassette, Austin would say bad motherfucker. So it is weird that on pay-per-view we're asked to not show the FTW. And then there's a spot in the match that would be pretty controversial. There is, uh, an attempted suplex by Taz where I think some would argue that, um, Taz what his time Taz's timing was off. Others would say maybe angle was overzealous and trying to go too fast. And he wanted to maybe help Taz more than Taz just muscle him up. And it looks like he's going to drop angle on his head. That doesn't happen. 
He sits him down, starts it over and then completes the move. But even in the match write-ups that would be discussed and supposedly that leads to a, a sit down the very next day. Like when Taz gets to the building the next day, you and Vince and Briscoe and a few others are waiting to talk to him. What was it about this match that got you guys attention and, and made you say, Hey Taz, you, uh, got to work a different style here. Oh yeah. We all waited at the door waiting for him to get there. All of us. No, Jerry Briscoe and I talked to Taz and Again, guys, Taz had a reputation coming in. Taz has had a reputation of working stiff. And to some guys, some of the suplexes where he would let guys go and shit didn't feel safe. And from the night before, working with Kurt, one of our top guys, you go, okay, look, man, it looked like you lost him here. And if you're not going to do the stuff safe, we don't want you doing it. We only want you to do the stuff that's going to be safe, make it look good. But we don't drop guys on our heads here. And you got to take care of your opponent. That's the extent of the conversation. No more, no less. How did Taz, Taz got it? How did Taz take it? I think he was a little taken aback. You know, he's like, that's my style. That's what I do. It's like, look, we're not trying to take away your style. We're just telling you that either do it safely or don't do it. And if the guys are uncomfortable taking it, nobody's going to want to work with you. If, you know, if you're going out and, for whatever reason, somebody gets dropped on their head. They're looking at the guy delivering the maneuver. And that's not a reputation. And that's not, that's not the rap you want. Let's Austin's not going to get in the ring with him. If he's dropping people on his head. Well, and, and you may be on to something when you said, you know, it's his first time in the garden because Taz has said that, you know, on his ride to the arena, cause it's a, it's a, it's a drive in for him. He lives in New York. Uh, he's pretty emotional on his ride in and he, he picks up his phone and calls Paul Heyman and, um, he's supposed to be really excited, but he feels sort of guilty about going here, knowing that he's probably supposed to be doing something with ECW. And it's probably fairly weird for him because he says he had three goals in wrestling. One was to make a living. Two was to hold any championship belt and three was to wrestle in the garden. And now he's about to check all those boxes but he's probably in his own head a little bit. Like, am I going to be the same performer without Paul Heyman's presentation? And maybe he was second guessing himself a little bit. And Paul psychs him up, even though Paul's feelings are probably hurt that he's leaving and he gets him ready for the match and he goes out and has the match. But again, he's overthinking it on the way to the ring. We would hear in years later, Taz would say he knew when he heard the reaction from the crowd. And by the way, go watch the tape Royal rumble 2000. When they reveal that Kurt Angle's opponent and the guy coming to shut his mouth as he's talking about the three eyes in the ring is Taz, it's a big pop from the hometown crowd. And it's, it's a surprise and it's a big moment. But Taz says in hindsight, he knew right then as he's walking to the ring, he was doomed. Like it wasn't a WWE creation and they're cheering me. They're never going to fucking push me to this level. And I know you're going to take issue with that, but a lot of guys like Bill Goldberg, when he came in for his first run, that was certainly his Testament. What would you say to uh, a Taz in 2000? Who's like, well, I got a big reaction, but it was too big. So they're not going to push me. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Okay. We don't want anybody to get over. He's over. So let's kill it. 
That's stupid. Well, I, I understand. And I know you would say that, but you're, are you going to really say that they're, that every, every idea about there being a discussion of, well, if it got over and it wasn't our idea, Therefore, we don't like it. That's all bullshit. Oh, that's yeah. A- that's we say. Oh, yeah. Well, this is over, but but, but we don't like it because somebody else says stupid. Think of what you're saying. That's stupid. Why would you do that? Well, I'm mean, just saying you did a lot. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. No, we didn't. Different audiences, different reactions, different times, different people. And it's uh, that's a stupid way of doing business and that's not not the case and i'm sure that you and everybody else and dave Meltzer and taz and whoever may think that simply not true let's keep it going you haven't buried him just yet but the shovels are coming uh no way out 2000 february taz beats the big boss man by dq in about 50 seconds uh he's working his his ecw style but trying not to hurt people that you guys are insinuating he's going to hurt people. Um, but to Taz's point, you know, you said earlier, you had a reputation for being someone who would hurt guys. Doesn't he have to work a very physical style to make up for his, and I don't mean this derogatory shorter stature. I mean, if he's working with bigger guys, he's got to be stiffer, right? Not necessarily. But again, what we made reference to is dropping people on their heads. Okay. And 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 a specific specific maneuver. Now, again, if you're saying, "Oh God, they told me I can't do any suplexes," that's not the case. And that's not true. You need to be careful. You need to take care of guys. That's it. And again, trying to be in front of the rumor mill in front of guys going, oh, fuck. Yeah. I heard an ECW one time. He broke three guys necks in one night. That shit happens. And we didn't want that to happen. To be clear. Like, you're not saying that it actually happened. He broke three guys necks. You're saying people. No, I'm say saying that that's like how that. shit gets started with right. Dave Meltzer fucking report shit. That's untrue. And people read it and then they take it for fact. The boys do the same thing. Oh, I heard he, he hurt this kid never came back to wrestling it's it's bullshit let's talk about wrestlemania 2000 taz is a part of the hardcore battle royal match during the match he wins the hardcore title twice but of course when it's all over hardcore holly leaves the match as champion we should mention here though around this same time mike awesome is who's still the ecw world champion signs with wcw and man, what a crazy piece of business this is. We've talked about it before, but let's revisit it now on April 13th, 2000, they're in Indianapolis, Indiana. Awesome is contracted to come in to defend the title at a house show. And he's already signed his WCW contract, but he lands, gets a rental car or gets a ride, whatever, comes straight to the building already dressed in his gear. Doesn't go through the back. And then Taz comes out as a huge surprise because he works for the WWF and quickly defeats awesome to win the ECW world title. So what an interesting situation this is. Mike awesome is a WCW contracted wrestler. Taz is a WWF contracted wrestler and Mike awesome just lost the ECW world title to a WWF Taz. Woof. When do you first hear about this predicament that Paul Heyman has now with his champion signing the WCW and how quickly do you guys come up with the task solution? 
Paul had called me about it and told me, you know, what what had transpired. Asked, is there anybody that uh, is there anybody I could use? Now I don't know if Paul already had in his head Taz or or what, but I, I remember at first asking if there's anybody he could use, and then he came back and says, um, "What about Taz? It would get." be a huge fucking deal. You know, he, he left to go to WWF. Now he's back. He's, he's one night in the ECW arena and he becomes the champion. People are going to go, what the fuck? I think Paul needed a, what the fuck moment at this point, because again, his guys were leaving and awesome's now at WCW and they know he's going to drop it. They know he's going to come in and drop the title, but to who? And then when it's Taz, it's like, holy fuck, that was a holy shit moment. That was a good holy shit moment for ECW and everybody involved. Supposedly, uh, this deal comes together when Paul Heyman calls Vince McMahon and Heyman lays out the idea that Taz wins the belt, drops it back to Tommy Dreamer on April 22nd in Philly. But of course, before we can get there, something else happens. Uh, there's a SmackDown held in Philadelphia, home of ECW and the ECW world champion is going to wrestle the WWF world champion. Triple H triple H is going to break Taz's submission, hold the Taz mission, and then set him up for a pedigree. Tommy dreamer gets on the apron. So triple H shoves him to the floor. Then dreamer grabs a chair, swings at a triple H who ducks. Tommy hits Taz which obviously helps build up their match at the ECW arena. And then triple H delivers a pedigree to dreamer and then pins Taz. And you're going to say this isn't to bury and diminish Taz in the ECW world title, right? I'm sorry. We just filmed something for them, shot something for them to build up their show and their angle that they got to use from WWE TV and use to build their stuff. Nobody saw any of that shit other than Tommy Dreamer coming out, costing Taz the championship. So we shoot an angle for him. How does that bury him? You want him to win? You want him to win our title too? No. I mean, why, why have him wrestle triple H? Cause that's what Paul wanted. Paul wanted him to, to cost him the biggest match of his fucking career in Philadelphia. Wow. Well, how the fuck does that ma- in Philadelphia, the home of Taz and all the, and dreamer comes out and costs him the goddamn championship and dreamer cost Taz this big moment to help them with their ECW angle. But of course you and Dave Meltzer would look at all oh, that buried Taz. Uh, it, it helped them. It built their, it built their fucking show. It helped them listen to you. Oh, I'm sorry. How did that not help? We could have just gone out. Hey, okay. Just have a match and not put him against the champion, not put him against triple H. Let's imagine it means let's imagine how in the fuck do you not see that? Well, because once upon a time when WCW had a bigger audience and one of your guys was going to jump, I don't know that it would have made sense. For you to have one of your guys, I don't know, just, it diminishes the belt 
and it diminished Taz and it made, oh my God, it made the match with Taz and dreamer that Taz ECW champion is going on to win the WWE championship. But Tommy dreamer comes out and costs him that opportunity. So now you've got the dreamer Taz match on ECW for their coveted championship. A few days later on April, that's an angle in a story. Tommy dreamer, of course, pins Taz five minutes, reverse cradle wins the ECW world title that that, they buried him in ECW to come back to us motherfuckers. Then a few days, a few minutes later, just incredible comes out and quickly beats Tommy dreamer. And now he's the champ. And after this, Taz is back with the WWF and has no real direction, no angle. Uh, just random matches. He's hopping around for about five months. Um, before, you know, this just comes to sort of a grinding halt. It's just amazing that, you know, debuts in January. And then by May, we kind of fucking got nothing there. Taz is going to hurt his arm. He's out for the summer as a result. And then when he comes back, uh, he turns heel. He's put into a feud with Jerry Lawler. On TV, he beats Al Snow. He's cheating to win. And as he's leaving the ring, JR is criticizing him for cheating. Taz hears it and decides he should play off of it. So Taz goes to Vince and uh, wants to go after JR for his comments. He's mad about it. Vince agrees. Okay, that'll be fun. So during a Raw, Taz goes to the announce table, starts yelling at JR, telling him to hit him. Lawler gets up and hits Taz. There's a big pull apart. Then on SmackDown, he attacks Lawler. They have Taz replace Jerry on commentary with Michael Cole. And it's only supposed to be for one match. And they're supposed to, you know, tell him in the headset when to leave, but the match ends and they never told him to leave. And the music starts playing for the next match. So he stays. Then Kevin Dunn comes on and tells him to stay. And the plan was for Lawler to come behind Taz, beat him up, take the, take back the seat, but they end up keeping Taz out there for a couple of segments and Years later, Taz would say, I think they were auditioning me, but I didn't know it at the time. And when he goes to the back, Vince tells him he did a good job. Taz said, thanks, but I hate it. And Vince said, you hate it. And he said, yeah. And Vince says, well, that's your future. And, uh, yeah. Two weeks later from this, Taz gets a call from Kevin Dunn, asking what he's doing that weekend. And he tells him he's going to the house show loop in California. And he asks if he wants to go to the UK because Lawler can't make it. And they need someone to do color. This is unbelievable to me. Tell me how you remember this coming to be where Taz gets an accidental on purpose audition to do commentary. Every time that you are out in front of an audience, it's an audition, no matter what you're doing. So it wasn't a, Oh, Hey, let's, it just happened. It was put Taz in that position. Taz held his own. Fuck, leave him out there. He's entertaining. Leave him out there for a while. Um, and then listening to it, it's like, son of a bitch. And looking at your longevity of your career, how many more years did he have in the ring? And how many years could he have behind the desk? You know, the longevity is on the other side. Um, if you can make that work and versus having to go out and take bumps all the time. So it was a happy accident. He went out for the segment did a good job, leave him out there and shit. We may have another common color commentator on our hand. It's just unbelievable that it becomes 
you know, a real thing eventually. And of course, uh, Kevin Dunn really pushes him, even though Taz is saying, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Uh, eventually Taz realizes, even though they're asking, I'm kind of being told, I don't really have a choice. I probably need to go do this, but JR takes good care of him and helps him get through the pay-per-view helps him prep. And when it's all over with, everybody's happy. Uh, but of course we're not done with Taz in the ring. It's going to lead to a match eventually with Taz and Lawler at SummerSlam 2000. Uh, Lawler's going to pin Taz in four minutes and 24 seconds. The crowd's very into Lawler and, uh, it's a fun match for what it is, but we should mention that it's almost comical. We've talked about this in the archives. It's something to wrestle. There is a, a glass candy jar and I need you to tell the story here for those of us who maybe haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a long time. Oh God, the, the candy jar on the damn commentary position and right at the right time, Jr. picks it up and smashes it over Taz's head. Now it's gimmick glass, but it's still glass. And, uh, of course, Jr. cut his damn hand on it. And I think Taz got busted open. The match itself was fun. I I enjoyed the match itself, and I, I thought it was fun, and it was a good story, and it gave him something to sink his teeth into and, and have a little fun with Lawler there and Jr. But kind of was what it was. It is interesting, though, that a year prior to this, Taz is this unbeatable monster in ECW. I mean, just the supreme badass, and now he's pinned by Jerry Lawler in four minutes and 24 seconds and getting paid every two weeks more than he was making at ECW the next time in two on, months, the next time on raw, Steve Blackman would beat Taz when Taz attacked Jerry Lawler and Jr. And, uh, <laughs> Jr. Hits Taz with a garbage lid. This is wow. An ECW finish right there. Is it fair to say you guys didn't know what to do with Taz at this point? I don't know if, if it was not knowing what to do with him. I think that it was one of those um, trying to figure out what the hell to do with him. Taz wanted to be a badass. I don't think anybody was buying him as a badass. To be, so to be I clear, think he needed to make him a smartass versus a badass. To be clear, Taz has not been critical of the booking in this era, at least publicly. He's always said, I was happy to be a part of the company. Absolutely. No regrets. So your point of, Hey, he was making good money. I mean, he's not arguing that at all. Uh, let's, let's talk about where we are next for the unforgiven pay-per-view of all the things you could do. You got to think, well, he's going to have a feud for the hardcore title or nope. Another match with Jerry Lawler. This time it's a strap match. But this is around the same time where we see a different presentation for Taz. And we haven't talked about this before, but he's no longer wearing the singlet. Now he's wearing, it's like trucker Taz. He's got a Dickie shirt on. He's got long pants. They look sort of like sweatpants. And Taz says the change is his idea. Uh, but this does feel like something we'd have to run by Vince. What do you remember about Taz changing his look? I hated it. And I'll tell you why I hated it because Taz, not the biggest guy in the world. I think that when you put pants on him and cover up everything, that it made him look shorter than he actually was. And one of the things about Taz, when he had, he had these monstrous legs and he, you know, son of a bitch, 
like you look at them go, there's a lot of power there. And I just, uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And I think Taz was looking at it for merchandise and selling the Dickie shirt and things of that. So different strokes, different folks. I fucking hated it. I wanted the old Taz and, uh, it's funny because, you know, my sort of, uh, barometer on, on wrestling sometimes is to let my dad look at it. The most casual of casual fans. And I showed him the, uh, or I watched this week when he was over, uh, Taz's debut in the garden. When Taz came through the curtain, my dad remarked, and again, my dad has no idea who Taz is, but he says, God damn, that's a big motherfucker. And of course we know Taz is not the tallest guy, but how thick he was like his legs, like you're talking about, he's a fucking fire hydrant. So he is. when you, when you cover all that up, he just likes like a shorter trucker guy. Um, I yeah, know. I didn't think it flattered him as that was my issue with it. I just thought that the, the singlet made him, made him a fire hydrant. That's a perfect way to describe him. Let's keep it moving here. The strap match, five minutes, five seconds, uh, quarter star Meltzer would say it was billed as you had to drag your opponent around and touch all four corners. Amazing lack of heat. Uh, both guys exchanged whipping each other with the straps. It was pretty bad early as Taz doesn't sell well at all. Uh, not the best match. Of course, there's going to be a ref bump. Raven comes out, hits Lawler with a DDT. Then Taz chokes him out and there's your win. And now the two former ECW champions, Taz and Raven are going to form a tag team, but it doesn't last long. And they're split back up in November. Why don't you guys do the stutter step on Taz and Raven? I don't, I, first of all, I don't think Taz really liked it and it just felt old. I don't know how else to put it. It felt old. It felt rehash and, and it, it didn't, um, didn't work. Do you get the impression that as much as, you know, we know that I'm a, uh, an ECW loyalist, loyalist, as much as I love ECW, do you get the impression that sometimes, uh, Taz wants to distance himself from ECW and the ECW brethren? Cause it doesn't feel like he like does a bunch of ECW reunion stuff and almost everybody else who was in the organization does. I, I would. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yes, he does. And I, I think that Taz, I don't know that Taz wants to be labeled with, with any group. And I think Taz wants to be labeled as Taz and stand on his own two feet, not, not bank off of the memory of ECW or anything else. Well, of course he doesn't have an opportunity to do that right away because once the Alliance angle starts, of course, Taz has to be with the ECW side. Uh, and he's going to be doing commentary full time at this time, but they're going to make him the heel commentator, defending the Alliance and rooting for their wrestlers. And a few months in, he starts to have problems with the Alliance leader, Steve Austin. So during Steve Austin appreciation night, when all the members of the Alliance are in the ring singing to Steve, they all have on Austin shirts, but Taz has on a Taz shirt and Austin would confront him about it, rip it off of him and then beat him up. And that leads to a match between the two on raw, which of course Austin wins in less than two minutes with a stunner. Now I'm sure in 02, this doesn't seem like a, a huge deal or, or late 01 as we're covering the story here in a vacuum, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal, but a couple years prior to this, Steve Austin's the biggest star in the world and the WWF. 
But Taz is seen as the biggest star in ACW. And my half times change where we're just beating him clean on TV in under two minutes. What do you think a, uh, a Taz at the height of his ECW run versus, you know, Steve Austin at the height of his WWF run, what could that have looked like? Had you got them both at the right time, right place? I think it probably would have been a clash of styles. Uh, I really do. Um, I think Taz always needed the right opponent and Steve in a lot of respects always needed the right opponent. Steve needed to overcome and Taz needed to dominate. So I just think it would have been a clash of styles, especially in their heydays. I, I don't know. It would have meshed well. Lawler comes back to the company in November of one. Uh, Taz is still going to stay on as a commentator, but he'll also start to wrestle again. And around, uh, this time he, he forms a, a tag team with Spike Dudley and, uh, they defeat another pair of ECW alums, the Dudley boys in a hardcore match to win the tag team titles. And this sort of comes out of nowhere, but it would lead to a rematch at the Royal rumble, 2002 pay-per-view and Taz and Spike would retain over the Dudleys. Well, where does this come from? This pairing of Spike Dudley and Taz. Unfortunately it came from, you know, again, that history of well, you know, who will have a great, you know, be a great partner and be great opponents for the Dudleys that can do all their stuff going back to the ECW days. And you want the Dudleys to get over, you know, Taz and Spike know how to get their shit over and vice versa. You know, goddamn, the Dudleys will sell Taz great, make Spike look like a human crash dummy. So that was, that was the theory behind it. Taz and Spike would uh, lose the titles to Billy and Chuck on the February 19th edition of SmackDown. And once the first draft happens, Taz is put on SmackDown as a full-time commentator. Uh, he does that work until 2006 when ECW's brought back and they get their own show. And I think Taz requested to work on that show thinking maybe he needed something new. What did you think of, uh, Taz as a, uh, the voice of SmackDown for so many years here? I actually thought that Taz did a hell of a job. Uh, I liked Taz's color commentary and he was, I liked him frankly more with Jr. because of the New York and the Southern draw. Um, I thought it was a, a nice compliment to it, but I've always been a fan of Taz's color commentary. Is there some rhyme or reason for the sound? Like uh, from a production standpoint, you said you liked the New York and the Southern is that important that the announcers have distinctly different voices? And I mean, is there, is there thought put into that on the WWE level? Is it always just hey, who does the best job I, of, you know, explaining the story? It's who has chemistry. Yeah. It's really who has chemistry. And that's what makes, you know, that's what makes any good announce team work. And for the longest time, you know, announcers, they all came from the Midwest because the Midwest was considered not to have an accent. So, you know, from Kansas and from, um, Minnesota and Wisconsin, but if you ask me, you know, a true Minnesota, Wisconsin, they have a very strong accent. Like you and I, we have no accents. We're just norm. We speak normal. No, everybody listening to this knows that I have no accent at all. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. So we talk like normal people, I do, could, you know, I could live anywhere, California, Minnesota, Texas, New York, New York, Florida, yeah. and it, this would be universally accepted. No one would look twice. Hundred percent. 
but uh, I, I thought that I thought that you know the I like the different accents. Talk to me a little bit about moving the ECW. You know, I, I know in hindsight everybody knows. Whoo, that was a fucking dumpster fire. But we didn't know that here. Uh, what can you tell us about? You know, when, when this show comes down the pike and he's on SmackDown and he wants to go to ECW, do you remember anybody saying, mm, I don't know if that's a good idea or at the time was everybody fairly optimistic and felt like, well, no, that makes sense. You and Joey, we were optimistic because it was an identifiable team and it was identifiable in that Joey had been the voice of ECW when ECW was ECW and Taz was the mainstay. So we thought there was going to be a comfort level there with the audience having those two on commentary. The guys, Taz and Joey would work together on the WWE 24 seven network where they would cover the history of extreme championship wrestling. And at some point in 06, Taz and Michael Cole, his former co-host from SmackDown host a week long trial run of a show on Howard 101 on Sirius XM. The show was not picked up. It's sort of fun to me to think about those guys doing a show together because we know now Taz does radio. Did you hear any of the Taz and Michael Cole trial run shows here on, on Howard station? I did not. I, I heard about it, but I never heard any of the shows. And, and it was during a time where Sirius was looking to, to do a lot of different things. And they were trying a lot of different things and trying out a lot of different pilot shows, that being one of them. We should mention he uh, also hosted a show, uh, 92.3 FM with uh, sporadic intervals between uh, summer of 06 and early 07. It's not picked up long term. The station changes formats and replaces all their talk shows uh, with music instead. And uh, I think we've touched on it before. Taz and Styles working together in ECW. Well, when the first one night stand pay per view happens, Taz has what wound up being his last match against his old rival, Jerry Lawler and Taz wins with the Taz mission. Of course, it's less than a minute Uh, at this point. Taz is probably, uh, not wanting to get back into the ring. Was there any consideration though, that, Hey man, he got a big pop and we're bringing back ECW. Maybe we can try it. I don't think that Taz, no, there wasn't because Taz didn't want to get back in the ring at that time either at all. So he did the one, but Taz wasn't looking to get back in the ring by any stretch of the imagination. Let's talk about an interesting moment that happens in 2008, it's April 29th. And on an episode of ECW, Taz's broadcast partner, uh, Mike Adamley abruptly walks off a set prior to the main event. And moments later, after reading the promo for the upcoming pay-per-view, Taz walks out as well, leaving the main event with no commentators. As a friend of ours would say. <laughs> oh man. Um, I remember very well Vince just Taz had been on Mike Adamley's shit and you could tell that Mike was getting flustered and, and Mike was firing back at Taz and what have you. And Vince just finally said, Mike, get up and walk away. Just get up and leave. Come on back. And he did. And I met Mike and Vince told me, he goes, grab, grab Mike and have him wait for me in my office. And then, uh, I came back. I said, what the fuck? He goes, what do you think we should do? So what are you doing? And next thing you know, he told Taz, just get up and walk away. Taz, just get up and come back. And I met Taz and took him back to Vince's office. 
And we all waited in there for Vince to come back. And Vince came back and says, ah, you know, there's something with you two bickering. I, I think I may want to do something with it. But I remember Taz being just confused, pissed, but more confused because nobody, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Uh, he sure as hell didn't know what was going on. And they didn't know if they were in trouble. They didn't know if Vince was pissed. I'm trying to tell him he's not pissed. He's laughing up there. And he, I, I think he's got an idea. Um, it never materialized to anything. But it, in that moment, it was a moment of confusion and a moment of totally what the fuck. Um, I don't think anybody in the truck knew what was going on. And we had them leave separately and leave right then. And then we started thinking about it. And Vince was like, ah, there's nothing there. <laughs> you know, then we went next. Well, yeah. Um, August, 2008 Taz is going to fill in for Mick Foley as a color commentator on SmackDown. And, uh, Matt Stryker is going to fill in for Taz on ECW. And when Foley winds up leaving the company, Taz becomes the permanent color commentator on SmackDown. Once again, when you think of Taz on commentary in WWE, you, you think of SmackDown more than anything else, right? No. You think of him as an ECW commentator more than SmackDown? Well, as far as just commentary. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. SmackDown. Definitely. I thought you were talking about overall. Oh no. Listen, to be clear, I'm glad we're talking about this. Cause I was going to ask you this eventually. When I think about Taz, I think of Taz, the ECW wrestler first and foremost, but I know some people, and maybe even at this point, Taz himself thinks of himself as a commentator. Do you think of Taz, the wrestler or Taz, the commentator? I think that globally Taz had much more success as a commentator. I think there's a small contingent that think of Taz as that ECW guy, but I think that he probably became better known and, and, and in a better way as a commentator. I think Taz, I, I think Taz is a good color commentator and could, could do well. Well, let's talk about what happened and why he's no longer doing it. April 3rd, 2009 Taz leaves the WWE when his contract expires. His WWE.com profile was moved from the active SmackDown roster to the alumni list for a short time before being completely removed, confirming his departure from the company. And you were gone by the time Taz leaves, you'd been gone for five or six months. Did you ever talk to him about what led to his decision to leave the WWE? I mean, he had a nine year run here. I think it was just a, a contractual deal where I think Taz wanted more money and, and less, less work, but I, I can't tell you for sure. Cause I, I never talked to him about it other than it was time to make a move. And that happens sometimes nine years is a long time to be somewhere. And I think he was ready for a move and ready to do something else. And to me, that kind of solidified him as, as a color commentator, being able to go and do that elsewhere. Do you think he already had the TNA deal lined up when he quit W when he leaves WWE? That wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, I'm sure during negotiations, he probably had something lined up. He does debut. Uh, with TNA victory road, the 2009 pay-per-view it's during the sting Samoa Joe match. He reveals himself to be Joe's advisor. 
So Taz becomes a heel and sides with the main event mafia. Uh, on August 29th of 2009, Taz would replace Don West as color commentator. And I know you watched some TNA with Don West as a color commentator. And obviously you were there when Taz was, uh, on commentary. What do you think of that replacement? Is that an upgrade or did you like Don West in that position? I love Don West personally. And I think Don West is probably one of the best pitch men ever in the business. And if you want to sell something, you get Don West to sell it. I did not think Don West was good at color commentary. And I think it was a huge upgrade to put Taz in there. Um, but it's not a knock on Don West. I just didn't think Don was good at color commentary. Don's that pitch man when you want to sell shit and nobody can touch him there. Well, no argument from me. Um, you know, tell me about TNA. We haven't talked about TNA, you and I a lot, but you were in, uh, you were in TNA when Taz was there. Any good memories? I mean, was, was he still the standoffish, not very social Taz? Had he loosened up by this point? What do you I think he loosened up, but I mean, my, that was some of my fondest memories because Taz and Mike Tanay had half of a trailer. There was the female, uh, trailer. Half of it was for the females to dress and change. And the other half was where Mike and Taz would prepare for the show and everything and kind of used it as their dressing room. So a lot of my favorite hours at TNA were spent in that trailer, just going over the show with Mike and Taz. So it was a lot of fun. It was different Taz. He was much more relaxed. And I think Taz was at a point in his career where, where he was having some fun. So I enjoyed him. I, I enjoyed going in and again, it was a respite for me and Taz just didn't hang out with a lot of people, but, but every once in a while he would meet Tanae and I at a sushi place and then we'd go have a cigar and just chill out. But, uh, those are few and far between Taz pretty much like to keep to himself. Taz wound up making it longer in TNA than you did. He's, uh, he's out of there come April 15th, 2015. Do you know why Taz's run and TNA came to an end? I have absolutely no idea. I, I, I assume that it was just, they got to the point where they couldn't pay him anymore. Um, I could definitely see that happening because I think that happened with a lot of talents. And I think that was what happened with Taz, but I couldn't tell you for sure at all. Let's talk a little bit about a story you've told me before about how you would uh, have a little fun with Taz and rib Taz, because there's something that you love to point out that, uh, maybe he didn't enjoy. And what was that? Well, it involves his name. Taz with two Z's. That's his fucking name. Taz. And I always wanted Taz has a tattoo on his shoulder. It says Taz, but he spelled it wrong. He left off a Z. So I was constantly trying to get Taz to go and get the tattoo finished. So come on, man, you gotta get, you gotta get that extra Z so people know who you are. And that would drive him fucking insane. You've told me before that sometimes when you guys were in meetings, if he was wearing sort of a sleeveless shirt or whatever, you would even take a pen and try to draw on the other Z <laughs> to me is the most Bruce Pritchard story ever. I wanted it to be complete because, okay. 
think of think of it if he's out in public and they look at him and they wonder is that Taz? And then they look at the tattoo and they go, no, no, just Taz. What do you think uh, Taz's legacy in wrestling will be? You know, he he spent a lot of top years in front of a big audience as a commentator on SmackDown. And then he spent a lot of TNA's best years, their top years. He was a commentator there. And, you know, the hardcore fans like myself still remember him as the ECW wrestler. What do you think it'll be when it's all said and done? When it's all said and done, I think the best years of Taz's career were behind the desk doing color commentary. And there was always going to be that niche that thinks that the best years were in ECW. And he had some great years there, too, because he was the top dog. And he was that ECW standard bearer. So I think it's a you can flip a coin for me. It's behind the desk as a color commentator. A few years ago, he appeared on a WWE network special, like the untold story of ECW or something like that. And it was a rare opportunity to see Tommy dreamer and Paul Heyman and Bubba Ray and all these guys together. Uh, Taz is not really uh, a guy who, who talks about ECW a lot, or, or as we said, you know, really fellowships with those guys a lot. Do you think, what do you think if you had to guess his relationship is like with his old ECW locker room mates? I think he has a good relationship with all those guys. I just think that Taz doesn't want to go back and relive those glory days. I think he wants to look forward and create new glory days for himself. I think a lot of guys get caught up in that ECW thing is they want to go back and relive their heyday of, of, you know, being rebellious and against the world. And I don't think Taz is, is that guy. I think he had fun. And I think that he looks back on it fondly, but I don't think he wants to relive it. I just wonder, you know, do you think Taz is sort of misunderstood? I mean, we talked about at the top of the show that, you know, he maybe takes himself or used to take himself too seriously. And I wonder how many of those guys he used to share a locker room with, you know, are still, maybe the relationship isn't what it could be. Like you see Paul on a pretty regular basis. Now, what do you think Paul Heyman's relationship is like with Taz today in 2019? I I don't really know, but I, I think that from Taz's viewpoint, I think, uh, look, some guys grow up. Some guys don't Taz grew up. Taz has a son who's a junior in college and has a, a a hell of a potential career ahead of him. And it's, he's grown up, man. He's a family man. He, he loves his wife. He loves his son. And that's what he's into. So I think that there are some that want to just go back and relive and, and stay in, Hey, remember when we did this? Remember when we do that? When I look at Taz, I hear the guy that's talking about what he wants to do. He, he likes to go back, but he's, he's looking forward instead of looking back. And we all kind of get caught up in this podcast where we reflect on, on the glory days and different times. And we all have our stories and I think Taz enjoys telling those, but I think that he is more interested in the now in the future. I think is the best way to sum it up. Well, if you want to reflect on the glory days of your dick, you should go to bluechew.com. Isn't that right, Bruce? 
Absolutely, because BlueChew.com will make your dick hard. And it's chewable, which means it acts faster. It's ready when you're ready. And being a listener to this show, this show right here, if you go to BlueChew.com and you use our promo code WRESTLE, you're going to get your first um, first shipment absolutely free. All you got to do is pay $5 for shipping. And Conrad has all of the details on BlueChew.com because if you need to get your little dick hard, <laughs> my God, BlueChew.com is the place to do it. Dude, BlueChew.com is going to get you stiffer than a Taz match in 1997. You, you got to check it out. Use our promo code WRESTLE. You'll find out it's got the world's first active ingredient as Viagra and Cialis as a chewable so it works faster it ships discreetly you skip the in-person doctor visit so it's cheaper than those other two i mean how do you beat this if it's faster if it's cheaper if it's easier if there's no awkwardness why wouldn't you try it for free just pay the five dollar shipping use our promo code wrestle you're still going to be talking to a physician but instead of going down to the doctor's office and paying a copay you do it right there bluechew.com check it out use our promo code wrestle we're going to get your dick real, real hard. Not us personally, but bluechew.com will. No, we're going to be there in spirit. Listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that bluechew, and then I want you to find the archives of something to wrestle. And Bruce and I will be there to cheer you on to get your dick real, real hard. You, you don't like, you're not comfortable with that at all, are you? I'm not. Uh, Taz, these days, if you're wondering, has a, a nationally syndicated morning radio show. It's uh, Taz and the Moose with Mark the Moose. Boy, I'm going to butcher that last name, so I'll skip it. It's CBS Radio. It's weekdays, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern. He's also got his own podcast, The Taz Show, which uh, used to be called The Human Podcast Machine. It's all about wrestling. So uh, if you're not where you can hear his CBS Sports Radio Show, uh, Taz and the Moose, then go download and subscribe to The Taz Show anywhere you enjoy this podcast. What do you think, man? You know, after all those years in the ring and then all those years behind the desk, you think Taz will ever make it into the uh, WWE Hall of Fame? Absolutely. Yeah, That's a definite. He will. Well, and we will be back next Friday and every Friday. I can't believe that we're, we're marching on as we uh, head towards uh, Halloween. This has been uh, a fun run of shows here in a row. Next and- week, next week, Conrad, I'll, I'll no longer be in Texas. How about that? Yeah, next week's going to be I'll different. be in Connecticut. My shit will be delivered one week from the day that we are. No, one week from tomorrow because we're doing this late Wednesday night. So a week from Thursday, my shit will be arriving in Connecticut. Well, there you go. Next Friday, though, tune in here for hashtag ask Bruce anything. On the 25th, we're going to do something totally fun. We're going to do a Halloween Havoc 1998 watch along. This has the horrific rematch from WrestleMania six with Hulk Hogan and the ultimate warrior on November 1st. It's all about fabulous moolah, probably getting a little trouble there. Then we're going to have some fun old school November 8th, the wrestling classic. This is before Bruce was there. This is all the way back in 85, but we're going to talk about some old school WWF and then we'll finish out November all about the survivor series. We'll do 99, 89, and 94, all the big anniversary shows. When we run through that full slate of shows, uh, what are you looking forward to the most? Ask me anything. I think so too. I'm looking forward to that. I love those. We get to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Uh, So if you'd like to participate in the conversation, go follow us on Twitter at Pritchard Show. Ask your question. 
We'll have it up by the time this episode drops. It's at Pritchard Show on Twitter. In the meantime, he is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Do you know Pasha Villa? Let me tell you something, amigo. I I know Pasha Villa. We had lunch one time. Chaka Khan. How long are we going to do this Pancho Villa shirt? The Pancho Villa is over. Hashtag Pancho Villa. By the way, we do have a Pancho Villa shirt. I can't believe that's real. Go to BrucePritchard.com. Check it out. And don't forget, when you pick up a shirt, uh, we mail you one. That's it. See there you, you go. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week right here on Something to Wrestle. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.